Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The biblical account of the children of Israel from the rise of King David until the destruction of the first temple is rife with family disputes, court intrigue, the division of a kingdom, and the exile of the ten tribes. The biblical text recounts that as King David lies on his deathbed, the prophet Natan and Bathsheba secure that her son Shlomo will reign in David's stead. King Shlomo, much like King David, holds a very special place in the collective memory of the Jewish people. For it's Shlomo, but known by many as Solomon, that builds the first temple, the most holy site and the structure of the Jewish people. However, after Solomon dies, two of his sons, Rehavam and Iravam, are unable to agree on who shall be Solomon's successor. So they split the kingdom. The independent kingdom of Israel is established in the north, and the kingdom of Yehuda or Judah, continues in the south. The Tanakh, the complete Hebrew Bible, moves on and tells us about the lives of the kings and their subjects in each kingdom, highlighting the sins of the people, highlighting the words of the prophets, and highlighting the moments of redemption that are espoused by each of the kingdoms. Historically, the kingdoms come to an end. In 722 before the Common Era, the entire kingdom of Israel was absorbed into the empire of Assyria. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in stages. In 733 before the Common Era, the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III conquered the northern Galilee and deported the inhabitants from a number of towns. The deportation of the inhabitants of these towns is recounted in the Tanakh in 2 Kings 15.29, as well as the writing of Tiglath-Pileser, which are discovered by archaeologists and published by Chaim Todmor in a critical edition in, 1940, in 1994. So there is some archaeological evidence which tells us about the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. In 725 BCE, Shomron, the capital city of the northern kingdom was besieged by the Assyrians, and three years later, it fell to them. Two years after that, the new Assyrian king Sargon II exiled thousands of inhabitants from the remainder of the kingdom and resettled them in northern Assyria. These events are recorded in the second book of Kings 17, and again in some Assyrian sources. 
Some inhabitants of the kingdom escaped south or remained in the land, but most were deported. Although Jewish memory teaches that the 10 tribes were lost during this time, in reality, they were not lost. Though, of course, many of you may know the phrase, the 10 lost tribes of Israel, and some have even written interpretive understandings of history in an attempt to explain what happened to the 10 lost tribes. But in reality, they were not lost. They were actively assimilated into Syrian society through population transfer, slavery, and most likely rape. Rape serves to forcibly impregnate women to affect the ethnic composition of the population, and as was the custom during this time in history, and unfortunately, also during our time as well. Nevertheless, the memory of the return of these tribes has been a permanent and unfulfilled part of Jewish aspirations of messianic redemption. Throughout history and into the modern age, longing for their return through sociological, historical, and scientific research has led many scholars and members of the Jewish community to claim that they have found evidence of these lost tribes, as I indicated earlier. Some have even suggested that um, the Kuzari, the king of Kuzar, who in the 11th century converted this northern uh, Ural Mountains tribe to Judaism, really uh, didn't convert them, but they are the descendants of the 10 tribes of Israel. You can find this in the book entitled The 13th Tribe, or you can find the history of their conversion in the uh, Spanish Jewish philosopher's book, uh, The Kuzari by Judah Halevi. The southern kingdom of Judah fell a century later. The great deportations from this kingdom in 597 BCE and 586 BC were conducted by the Babylonian Empire rather than the Assyrians. For those who are interested, it should be noted that the Assyrian Empire fell from power in 612 BCE and the Babylonians stepped into the power vacuum. The fact that Babylonia had conquered the south instead of Assyria had an enormous impact on the future of the Jewish people. In transferring populations, the Assyrians attempted to crush the deportees' ethnic political independence in order to create a more cohesive Assyrian empire. The Babylonians, on the other hand, encouraged their conquered ethnic groups who arrived in Mesopotamia to maintain their identity as ethnic communities, a more multicultural approach. This prevented the deported Judeans, as they were then known, from assimilating into the host culture, unlike their brethren in the north. Documents from the 5th and 4th century Babylonia, 
discovered by archaeologists and today available to all in the Babylonian section of the University of Pennsylvania Museum, reveal that ethnic groups such as the Judeans and the Egyptians lived as autonomous communities in Babylonia and had their own elders. In business contracts, individuals might be identified as the Judean or the Egyptian. This archaeological evidence demonstrates that the deported Judeans maintain their communal and cultural identity. After the division of the United Kingdom of Shlomo and David, the inhabitants of the southern kingdom became known as Judeans. The etymological precursor to the term Jews for which the people of Israel are now universally known. The term Judean has often been mistranslated to mean Jew in many documents from the advent of the kingdom of Judea until the middle of the second century BCE. But in fact, Judean is an accurate translation. Why is this important? Because the Judeans from the advent of the kingdom of Judah until the time of Antiochus Epiphanes in approximately 160 BCE were an ethno-geographic society. The two primary identifiers of the group were ethnic and geographic. Individual citizens were tied to each other through common birth and common land. The centrality of the land as depicted often has taken even more significant import during the time of King David and under King Solomon. We remember the centrality of Jerusalem was solidified with the building of the temple. The time period following the expulsion from Judea and the destruction of the temple in 586 left the Judeans without their cultic center, without their land, the two key factors in their geopolitically centered society or ethnocentric society. This left them yearning for return to their homeland, but also forced them to adopt to new circumstances and re-envision themselves. How did they do this? How did they manifest their continued yearning for a return to a land and for a life that no longer existed? Let me read to you Psalm 137. Certainly a psalm, that many of you know, even if in a different context. Al-Naharot Bavel, it begins in Hebrew. Shav yashavnu gam b'chainu, b'zarchenu etzion. Powerful words in Hebrew. Let me speak it again. Al-Naharot Bavel, sham yashavnu gam b'chainu, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat, there we wept, as we thought 
of Zion. There on the poplars we hung our lyres, for our captors asked us there for songs, our tormentors for amusements. Sing us one of the songs of Zion, they said. How can we sing a song of the Lord on alien soil? Here's a verse that I'm sure many of you know. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither, let my tongue stick to my palate. If I cease to think of you, if I do not keep Jerusalem in memory, even at my most happiest hour, Remember, O God, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they cried, strip her, strip her to her very foundations. Fair Babylon, you predator, a blessing on him who repays you in kind what you have inflicted upon us, a blessing on him who seizes your babies and ends your life. In this text, the psalmist depicts the emotional significance of the exile to Babylonia. The author portrays the Judeans in exile as still clinging to the memory of Zion and Jerusalem. This poem, this psalm, this song is reflective of how Jerusalem and Zion had become an enduring memory for the people and remained as part of the emotional memory that was transmitted from one generation to another generation of Jews. The Judean people were grappling with a cataclysmic event that potentially could lead to the complete demise of their way of life. After all, they had been witness to the assimilation and vanishing of their northern brethren in the kingdom of Israel. This could easily have become the fate of the two remaining tribes comprising the kingdom of Judah. However, the Judeans were fortunate in that they were conquered by a more beneficent Babylonian empire that enables groups to retain their national identity. Nevertheless, their ability to remain steadfast to their traditions was remarkable considering that the Judean way of life at this point was completely tied to the land and to the worship at the temple. What you and I discuss and think of as Judaism was yet hundreds of years from being established. And so their maintenance of who they are was certainly a miracle. The people referred to in the text, are facing an existential crisis. How do they continue their traditions, their worship, their praise of God, without the cultic center that was such a basic component of their collective identity? The cry in verse 4 is not simply how to do this. How do we sing, the verse says but the voicing of deep anguish as how to continue their religion without the land that binds them. This pattern of an ethno-geographic identity is certainly manifest today 
in modern Tibet. Following the conquest of Quebec by the Chinese in the mid-1950s, the uh, Tibetan people, the Dalai Lama, faced the exact same question. How could his people continue to practice their Buddhism that was so intimately tied to locations and uh, temples in Tibet that were now being destroyed. Their response comes in the words of the prophet, where they find redemption and solace in their um, desire not to forget the centrality of Jerusalem, the embodiment of the land of Israel, and their cult-centered life at the temple. Memory, the notion of memory, thus ends up playing a crucial component in their efforts to maintain themselves as a people, even when devoid of their most important unifier, their homeland. In Psalm 137, the psalmist takes considerably darker turn in verses 8 and 9 when discussing finding happiness through the destruction of the Babylonian Empire. It is in the destruction of the Babylonians that the hope for redemption exists. To cleave to their own future redemption, they had to believe in the possibility that one day Babylonia would not exist and that they would be free. Now, this psalm, Psalm 137, is one of the most famous chapters in the whole of the biblical canon, as it embodies not just the longing for those people in the 6th century BCE, but also has become the longing of the Jews in exile since the destruction of the second temple in 70. The enduring memory of a people desiring to return to their ancestral homeland is palpable in the words of the psalm. And the psalm has been an ever-present reminder, as well as one might say a mantra, for the hope that one day Jews will return to Zion and Jerusalem, of course made manifest in 1948 with the establishment of the State of Israel and in 1967, where Jews had the, uh, following what's known as the Six-Day War, Jews were able to access the Western Wall, the uh, outer walls of the Temple Mount that had become part of the Second Temple. Let's continue this historical understanding of memory And to do that, I'm going to read to you from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, certainly one of the most powerful and articulate prophetic writers. Here's what he says in chapter 25, beginning in verse 8. Assuredly, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you would not listen to our words, I'm going to send for all the peoples of the north, declares the Lord, and for my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and bring them against this land and its inhabitants against all those nations round about. I will exterminate them and make them a desolation, an object of hissing, ruins for all time. And I will banish them from the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride, and the sound of the mill and the light of the lamp. 
The whole of this land shall be a desolate ruin. And those nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. When the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babylon, that nation in the land of Chaldeans for their sins, and I will make it a desolation for all time. And I will bring upon that land all that I have decreed against us, all that is recorded in this book, that which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For they too shall be enslaved by many nations and great kings, and I will requite them according to their acts and according to their conduct. So how does this fit in to the history that we're discussing this morning? In 609 BC, the last stronghold of Judea, Josiah was killed in battle. Judea then began to alternate between a vassal of Egypt and being a vassal of Babylon. In 597 BCE, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, as mentioned in Jeremiah, marched on Jerusalem in retribution for the Judean king's decision to cease being a Babylonian vassal. Jerusalem surrendered, and Judah's king, Joachim, was deported to Babylonia, as you've already heard, along with thousands of members of Judean elite and the temple treasures. A small, weak kingdom persisted until 586, when the king of Babylonian's servants burned Jerusalem in the temple and exiled its last king, Zedekiah, after a seven-month siege. Jeremiah, who you've heard me speak of just now, was the last of the great prophets who lived during the period before the final exile of the Jews in 586. He witnessed the deportations of 597 and 586 and was a contemporary of the last kings of the kingdom of Judah. From a traditional perspective, it appears that Jeremiah, known in Hebrew as Yirmiyahu, is describing the eventual exile of the Judeans and is urging them not to lose hope because the exile in Babylonia will not be permanent. This text from Jeremiah, like the Psalms, highlights the significance of the exile for the Judean experience and reality and identity. The exile was not merely a time of living away from their land, but a time of great sorrow and pain. The text from Jeremiah is an expression of a people living in desolation. Listen carefully again to what he says. I am going to send for you. I will exterminate them and make them a desolation. I will banish from them, referring to the Judeans, the sound of mirth and gladness, the voice of bridegroom and bride, the sound of the mill and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall be a desolate ruin, he tells them. These are a people, an ethnogeographic people that had lost the most important component to their identity, Jerusalem and their temple. Their collective identity required that they yearn for what they had lost, for without maintaining some connection to their land and temple, they would have assimilated into the Babylonian society entirely. 
similar to the assimilation of the northern tribes into Assyria. These emotions, more than the reality of life in Babylonia, preserve the centrality of Judean identity through the upheaval of an exile. The emotional bond to the land was canonized for future generation through these texts and became a central component of the Jewish experience and psyche. I want to share with you one more text today. It's from the book of Ezra. Ezra is kind of a different text. Um, it tells us of the return of the Israelites to uh, Israel from Babylonia. And if you'll stay with me for just a moment, we'll find this text from Ezra. I'm going to read you from Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. And you'll have a sense of a transformation that took place um, amongst the Judeans as they uh, moved back into their land. So this is Ezra 9. When this was over, the officers approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests of Levites have not separated themselves from the land of Israel, whose abhorred practices like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, the Amorites. They have taken their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed has been intermingled with the peoples of the land. And it is the officers and prefects who have led them in this um, behavior. What does this mean? Well, in 556, Babylonian throne was seized by its high officials. During this reign, they allowed the um, Persian Empire to conquer Babylonia and exile officially ended with the declaration of Cyrus the new empire that the people could no could return to their previous land of Judea. He de designated it as a province and outlined its new borders, leaving it with less territory than it had as the kingdom of Judea. According to Ezra, 40,000 Judeans returned to their homeland, although archaeological surveys show that the population was probably closer to 30,000. In addition to being granted the privilege to return to Judea, the Judeans were granted the right to rebuild their temple and establish their cultic center once again. The construction was eventually stopped, as documented in Ezra 4, under the reign of a new king, and not restarted and completed until the days of Darius I. Well, in this history, what I've described for you is not just the history of the destruction of the temple, but the creation of a memory that has um, been part of the Jewish psyche for over a thousand, two thousand years. The destruction of the temple, the return, and then, of course, the destruction again in 70. 
These memories are part of the memory bank of the Jewish people and infuse who they are and what they will be in the future. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and shalom. You can listen to this broadcast on the CHRI website as a podcast or download it from uh, iTunes. Shalom. Shalom. Yeah, I'll see you